watching all movies with Rebecca and Jason. Are you gonna love them or hate them? Here, Here comes, comes the binge. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Binge, in which a couple of homos review the latest streaming releases. I'm Jason Leroy. And I'm Rebecca Olarte, and we have four movies for you. Wonder Woman 1984, Soul, The Midnight Sky, and Sylvie's Love. And as always, we're going to rate these movies on a three-tiered scale, with Binge It being our highest rating. Consume in moderation means it's okay, but it's kind of meh. And Send It Back means... The pandemic is too short for that mess. Jason. Yeah. I feel like this is the shortest turnaround time between shows we've had in a while. It does feel like we just did this a week ago. Was it just a week ago that we was just it? did this? I, I think it was. That's crazy. Well, Look I mean... Us. It's that time of year. It's, you know, even though it's a different, a very different year, uh, all the same, we still have a, a big glut of prestige or prestige adjacent movies uh, being <laughs> being released in the Christmas season. And uh, as we tape this, it is four days after Christmas. And uh, so we've had a beat to uh, to see some of the, the big titles that have still uh, elected to be released, uh, despite the relatively, uh, you know, low revenue movie era that we are in. So, uh, so if all of us review these, them. All four of these came out on Christmas, right? Or Christmas um, Eve? Yeah, I think so. Like, yeah, they all came out Christmas or Christmas Eve. Uh, so these are the holiday, the holiday, feel good holiday hits of, uh, of 2020. You had sent me our uh, assignment list, and I was like, oh, cool, let me get started. I have all Christmas Eve off. And then I was like, god damn it. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I'll keep binging the Gilmore Girls. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sorry to have forced you into into Lorelai's arms yet again. (laughs) Uh, No spoilers. (laughs) I've actually never watched Gilmore Girls, not a second of it. I Um, I couldn't guess for you if it was something that you knew or not. But I'm guessing you're of... Well, I don't know. Yeah, I couldn't guess. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure I would like it. Scott's a fan. Um, and I yeah. have watched all, every episode of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, um, which mm-hmm. is another Amy Sherman Palladino show. And I even watched every episode of Bunheads. Uh, so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm a borderline Palladino completist. You minus have that the biggest tiny one. cat collection. <laughs> I do, you know, like I, I enjoy I enjoy a good steampunk look on a red carpet. Um, mm-hmm. And so she and I have that in common. Um, and I, I literally just before we taped this, I watched one more movie for good measure, which was I'm Your Woman, starring um, uh, starring Mrs. Maisel herself, Rachel Brosnahan, mm. as a mob wife on the run. Uh, so not Paladino, but I can't, you know, just can't uh, look at her and hear her doing dialogue without just being like Midge. So, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, that, by the way, is a very solid movie. I do recommend it. We're not reviewing it. And it occurred to me while watching it that we could have had it be number five. But you know what? We have enough to cover as it is, so uh, I'll just leave that there. Rebecca, how was your Christmas? As I've noted, it was spent um, in Stars Hollow, binging <laughs> Gilmore Girls. Did you actually do that on Christmas Day? I think I've been doing it on a day, on every day um, <laughs> that has happened over the last week, maybe two, and so yeah, Christmas would fall into that. Well, that's okay. Well. Um, although I think, you know, it was it was nice to have to watch movies because it was the only way I could pull myself out of um, the hole I'm, I'm in. And You're there's in really hole. barely a light at the end of the tunnel because I've just only, I think, started season four. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so, 
So uh, have you been wanting to watch Gilmore Girls for a while? Like how out of all the TV shows that are out there to stream, have you landed on that one? Take a guess. (laughs) (laughs) Teacup one to watch. How did things like this happen? Um, How did it come up? I don't remember. Um, I definitely... <laughs> Why am I doing this to myself? Unclear. <laughs> Unclear. How do we get into these things? Yeah, I think it was my my girlfriend's favorite show growing up, uh, or you know, in the years when it was out. And I don't even know. I think I was like, yeah, I'll give it a chance. And then I was, you know, it's one of those things at this time where it's like very low stakes. It's not very stressful. Um, and it's, it's a nice little, little solve. And now it has just enough of like, what's going to happen that I'm addicted and I must finish it. I see. I mm-hmm. see. And Melissa McCarthy is in that show. Is she not? She is definitely. Yep. Little I think baby. she's the only person that really made it out of that show famous. As far as I can tell <laughs> again, no spoilers. Don't tell me. <laughs> yeah. Don't tell me what the careers are currently for Lauren Graham and, uh, Alexis Bedell. I don't want to know. Wow, you're really oh, good. I'm... So, so that one guy. This is uh, this did happen. Milo. <laughs> uh huh. Ventimiglia. Thank you. I I think I had, we just had this conversation. And I was nobody else became famous. And she was like, and Sol was like, well, he's on that show now. The with the couples, and I could not like put their faces together at all. And she was like, you're like the opposite, Jason. You <laughs> you can't recognize people <laughs> or know their names. I mean, you've claimed before to have, like, male facial blindness, haven't you? It is true. It is true. And do you watch This Is Us? No, but I I, okay. I, could, I know what their faces look like, I think. It's enough <laughs> for me to not respect Sterling K. Brown anymore. Uh, you've lost your respect for Sterling K. Brown? Yeah, I just feel like now everything he's in seems like, a, seems like it has, like, the cheesiness of that show on it. Oh, boy, wow. As we just talk because... about Waves yet again. <laughs> I know, just because you didn't like Waves because he's on a feel-good NBC drama. You've just turned against one of the great actors of his generation. It's like, he never, it's like he never even played Christopher Darden or something. Come on. I know. It's crazy, isn't oh. it? Wow, wow. I mean, knee-jerk reactions are your forte. So, <laughs> <laughs> How is so your Christmas, I, Jason? You know. <laughs> You're like, I'll steer us away from criticism of me and... Uh... <laughs> Like something to make fun about your holiday. Genuine interest uh, about you. <laughs> well, thank you for asking. Um, it was very quiet. Um, I've been watching a lot of holiday movies that I have never seen before. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was really trying to prioritize those. I think the only one that I rewatched um, was National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, as usual. Um, that is a requirement uh, annually. That is my elf. That's my Christmas story. Um, and I know it's just me, right? No one else watches that movie, so it makes me special. So <laughs> the other holiday movies that I watched I'd never seen before, well, I watched uh, The Preacher's Wife with Whitney Houston, mm-hmm. uh, which I've always had a soft spot for despite never having seen because I'm very nostalgic for the episode of SNL uh, that was that aired to promote it, where Whitney Houston was a musical guest. Rosie O'Donnell, I believe, was the host. And then Penny Marshall uh, cameoed because she directed The Preacher's Wife. Wow, and, that was um, made for you. Yes, and all of them come together for the Mary Catherine Gallagher sketch from that episode. Uh, oh, I which, remember that. <laughs> yeah, remember? She's like she's in the, 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 the choir for the Christmas concert, and Rosie O'Donnell is like the nun conducting, and Penny Marshall is the one playing the piano, and Whitney yes. is like the star singer. 
I mean, it's a little slice of heaven. That's sketch. Um, <laughs> so I finally watched The Preacher's Wife, um, which is fine. Um, my enjoyment of it was somewhat dampened because I, I always am looking at the IMDb trivia for movies as I'm watching them for older movies. And uh, and one of the uh, factoids for this one was like, by this point, Whitney Houston was a daily drug user, as she confirmed to Oprah Winfrey in a 2009 interview. And I was like, oh, um, so that slightly tainted it, just knowing that she was like whacked out of her mind, apparently, during uh, the entire production of that film. Um, but uh, all the same, she's she's no less transcendent for it. Uh, so watch that one. I watched While You Were Sleeping, which apparently is considered a Christmas movie uh mm. because it takes place around the holiday it's a charmer little sandy b ben and bill pullman back when he was a romantic lead i guess which i lived through <laughs> but don't remember ever happening <laughs> um i watched the most recent remake of black christmas um which i would like to actually make an addendum to my review of the craft legacy because black christmas similarly is a blumhouse um you know reboot pg-13 uh, of, you know, the sort of more female-driven horror film uh, that yanks this this old, somewhat regressive piece of IP into the modern age and gives it, like, a super modern 2019 feminist makeover. Mm. So, so yeah, the, the Black Christmas remake that came out, and I think it was actually last year, 2019, um, it, it was, it was it's super, 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 like, au courant feminist. Uh, very Me Too era. Very, like, very, very pointed. And also female-written and directed. Uh, my girl Imogen Poots. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Love my poots. Love my poots. Um, I watched Imogen Poots accidentally in back-to-back screeners uh, just last weekend of The oh. Father and French Exit. So can't get enough of that poots. And, uh, you know, poots is chest dating. And, uh, and here for mm-hmm. it'll be called pootsing. So anyone, anyone having a big year where they're just popping up and everything is pootsing. And uh, that's going to be the final version of that word. Um, and uh, so anyone from here on out, it will not change shapes again. It will forever be pootsing. So she's pootsing at the moment. And uh, that's a good one. And the, the biggest one of all that I watched that I had never seen before. And I know this is ridiculous, but it's a wonderful life. Oh, mm-hmm. Had never seen it before. I don't know that I have seen it like in one full sitting. Uh, definitely not seen it in one full sitting as an adult. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. And I think part of the problem of why I had resisted all these years is because the only part that I have seen over and over and over again is the part that is in National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation from the final seconds of the film of the of of um you know jimmy stewart carrying his, lifting up his little daughter by the tree and she's like look daddy teacher says every time bell rings an angel gets his wings and it just seems so impossibly disgustingly sickly sweet and maudlin and cornball that i was like okay well like i never need to see that movie and little even, did i know even, even with your yeah. angel wing wing tramp stamp no, because, you know, like I rang a bell and they were like, you still have to pay us. Um, uh, okay. So yeah. I was like, OK, well, this is bullshit mythology. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, then I. So, yeah, so I was based on that few seconds, which are probably the worst few seconds in the entire movie. Um, I was like, I will never watch that movie. And now that I've watched it, I see that I've deprived myself for the first 38 years of my life of one of like, the most perfect, perfect, powerful old movies ever made. Um, it is a masterpiece, a masterpiece. 
and it gets dark. It gets dark as shit. Mm. Um, like it's a really, a really like just sad, heartbreaking, like depression era movie and, or not depression era, but world war two era movie. And it's incredible. Uh, like I was Scott came like toddling in right at the very end as he is wont to do and like plopped down and across from me. And it was like in the final scene and I was sitting there very moved, which he didn't realize. And so he just sat down, looked at the TV, looked at me and it was like, is this the part where life is wonderful? <laughs> and apparently he tells me I swiveled my head in a slow menacing way in his direction and locked like murder eyes onto him and he immediately recoiled and i said no the point is that life has been wonderful the whole time because he was going to kill himself and he's like okay and then he just like left the room so uh so it was <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> I, I was in a very emotional place and I was not in the mood to be trifled with. And uh, so, so yeah, so the movie, the movie <laughs> led to some holiday trauma for us. Uh, but uh, all the same, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a wonderful film. Uh, mm-hmm. Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life. Highly recommend. If you all haven't heard of it, you gotta <laughs> see it. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, so that, that has been wow. crossed off my list this year. This um, movie podcast a... really Keeping up with the times, really, with the controversial opinions and the. Mm-hmm. I know. Takes. Listen, I mean, I have to. Yeah, like I'm. I'm sorry. I know we're gonna lose listeners over this, but I'm just gonna come out and say it's a wonderful life. It's a good movie at the holidays. So I mean, there's zero diversity in casting, but oh, go ahead. <laughs> so and then of course we watch Wonder Woman 1984, um, which I guess brings us right into the first movie of this episode. Indeed, Wonder Woman 1984. Diana Prince lives quietly among mortals in the vibrant, sleek 1980s, an era of excess driven by the pursuit of having it all. Though she's come into her full powers, she maintains a low profile by curating ancient artifacts and only performing heroic acts incognito. But soon Diana will have to muster all of her strength, wisdom, and courage as she finds herself squaring off against Maxwell Lord and the Cheetah, a villainess who possesses superhuman strength and agility. Agilical. <laughs> agility. Jellical agility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this time, I did look at the internet. <laughs> <laughs> In the way, I looked at the internet after I saw cats. Mm, because mm. I said, please, please tell me. I can't wait to talk to you. I need to know. So... Now I'm going to be aware that everything I'm saying has already been said by somebody else. Great. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, and I realized, you know, I, I pulled together that that summary from Rotten Tomatoes or IMDb or something, and it calls Kristen Wiig's character Cheetah. But it's, it's, it's worth pointing out that I, I'm pretty sure at no point in the film is she ever referred to as such. I don't think so. And I don't think at any point is it explained why. She turns into it, a cat. Is a cheap is a cheetah considered the apex? Is there like, is it considered oh, the yeah. apex? But is it shorthand for apex predator? Oh no, gotta ask teacup. I mean, this, this, we're talking about teacup's extended family here, but apex but, predator. Yeah. Uh, I, I think whale. Cheetah's, oh, a cheetah is, oh. but cheetah's one of. Sure. In the in the cat family, is it the apex predator? Mm. I mean, I know they're very fast, right? <laughs> 
the lion is one of Africa's apex land predators. Okay, there's a lot of subtopics here. Oh boy. Um, yeah, it's one. <laughs> she also could have been uh, this great skua, which is a bird. Sure. Humans are apex predators, I believe. See, and she was all, and she was already a human. So <laughs> why are we why are we mudding the waters and throwing a cattail on her? Is what I want to know. I don't know. Uh, watching her, yeah, but, yeah, strap on her jellical suit and wriggle around underwater. What is uh, the difference, in your opinion, between the jellical suits and her suit? Well, <laughs> I mean, I her would... suit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you. Oh, uh, Apex Punditor. Go on. Oh. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> um... Yeah, I mean, I guess I wish that I could confirm which one had a butthole, um, but we still don't really know um, if if either of them did, really. Um, I, uh, my In my estimation, there is no difference at all um, between uh, uh, Barbara, Kristen Wiig, when she becomes Cheetah, again, unnamed and unexplained, um, and the Jellicles. Um, I mean, I guess, I guess Barbara makes somewhat no i don't even know why i say she makes more sense because that's the thing we never know what a jellicle is like jellicle is never defined in cats um which makes more sense right right in a way yeah to just be like well let's just not even say what it is um and then you know we see that they're all coming together for like the fucking suicide convention or whatever it is that they're doing whenever they like send the cats off and they're flying air balloons to go die or whatever um so lost on me um so i would say that they're about neck and neck in terms of not making sense um, I, you know, turned to Scott after the movie ended and I was like, so why was she a cat? And he was like, oh, that's interesting. He's like, so you don't know about the character of Cheetah. I'm like, <laughs> is that a character? And he's he like, locked eyes with you and said, yes. And now I'm going to kill myself because that movie was so bad. <laughs> no, he was like, yeah. He's like, no, that's a really, he's like, it's a, it's a pretty big character in the comics. So I'm like, oh, here we are again. <laughs> um uh, Scott gets to school me on the comics. So um he's like, Yeah, that's interesting. So you don't know Cheetah. So what did you think was happening? And I was like, I I, I didn't I didn't think about it what was happening. I because I had no I I had no earthly concept of what was happening. It was all nonsense to me. Um and uh and he's like, Well remember she had that animal print earlier in the movie. I'm like, What was that is that all it took? Is that is that <laughs> Is that why she became a cheetah? Because she wore an animal print? And he's like, no, no, that was just like foreshadowing. I was like, that's not enough to explain her becoming a cat. Um, you know, I just like, kept waiting for her to pick up an oversized fork to do battle with, uh, <laughs> with, with old Diana, with old DP. Um, so, which is what I'll call her from here on out. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I feel like that's that's kind of the main thing to talk about here is just the 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 cheetah of it all uh what what did you make of what was happening in those scenes um yeah i didn't really understand the the body the morphing and the anamorphs uh situation is not really happening to anybody else Mm. she she makes the wish to be an apex predator like that's the only thing right that's the only connection between being a, a a woman with some powers and this kind of fur beast that she becomes, which, and I, I'm just going to say uh, there, I don't think there is a difference. I, and I, I didn't do this in any sort of creepy um, way, but you know, the fur boobs are very similar to the, to the Taylor Swift situation from cats. Um, mm-hmm. 
that's the moment I was like, okay, is this the same? So I think it's the same outfit. Um, I think she just, we now know that uh, Kristen Wiig is as tall as Taylor Swift is. I think they just borrowed the costume from her. And, and which, um, which presumes that, you know, that we're, we're talking about an actual costume and not just like CG cat fur being applied to a person. But they look so similar. Yeah, I mean, CG can do that. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> you and your signs. Um, but I mean, no, I didn't it, understand. It's funny to imagine Kristen Wiig strapping on an actual cat suit and then just like jumping into this like pool to like film an underwater fight scene in it. And I yeah, mean, I that... wish she had. I mean, where's that behind the scenes featurette? Because that <laughs> would be hilarious. No, I had no idea. At that point in the movie, I had stopped trying to make sense of anything. Um, so I was just, you know, letting go and letting go. <laughs> Boo. Um, <laughs> you're on a roll, uh, Apex Punditor. Um, <laughs> yeah, did you notice that in a scene earlier in the movie, there's like a homeless man sitting on a bench reading a copy reading, of Waiting, waiting for, for Godot? Godot. Yes. Uh-huh. Which I also thought was crazy because that's not how her name is pronounced. No, so why I know. are you making it even more confusing? I know. Like, why muddy the waters further uh, for old Gal Gadot uh, with old the heavy Israeli tea? No. It's a very muddy movie. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't know what was going on. This, it, it seems to have triggered an entire reappraisal of the first one even like i'm seeing people being like oh like did all of you actually think the first one was great this whole time <laughs> and I'm like well yeah everyone thought the first one was great um but I'm, I'm starting to see the extent to which the first one may have been may have benefited significantly from the moment in time in which it came out mm-hmm. uh because it came out in 2017 yeah Ugh. uh you know so it was the first year of the trump presidency uh, you know, we were all still kind of riding high on the, you know, sort of self-righteous high horses of the Me Too movement conjoined with the Women's March. And, you know, so and this idea of, you know, the first Wonder Woman movie uh, being female directed and you know introducing us to, to Gal Gadot, um, you know, it, it just it, 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 it was a moment, you know, it was a zeitgeisty moment. And, it, you know, it had some dissenters that, that wished to take issue with it back then. But um, but in general, I mean, everyone was like, this should be nominated for Best Picture. Da, 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 da. Um, and uh, and it wasn't. And, and thank goodness for that, because I don't know in respect that it should have been. Um, and then this movie is just a mess. It's just a mess. Like, it's hard to really say much good about it. Uh, I appreciated the Trump allegory. Uh, you know, once I realized that that's what they were doing, I was like, oh, okay. We have Pedro Pascal uh, playing the first villain of the film. Uh, a sort of flailing, desperate, shady businessman with bad hair and bad suits uh, who manages to, you know, sort of start this entire following cult of personality around himself and, uh, you know, and, and nearly ends the world. So, you know, it's like, okay, cool, cool, cool. Um, you know, good Trump allegory, well done. Um, but then, you know, it, it, then introducing gradually, you know, this Kristen Wiig character, Barbara, as she becomes a villain as the film goes on, uh, I just, it just felt like what even, and, and I guess you could say that she in turn is sort of a, you know, in the in the allegory of this film, she represents white women for Trump. So that's... <laughs> <laughs> 
that's kind of that's kind of the the long and the short of me trying to make this film more than halfway to make sense of uh to make sense of uh its its message uh what did what did you make of it yeah it's very very generous of you um i think the movie the first one was kind of like it looked beautiful um and it it didn't shit the bed and but it it's still when you when you kind of get into to her fighting you know the the supreme god um started to break down a little bit in terms of like m- making sense or or being able to kind of get behind it. it it also felt a little muddy but it mm. was like not not detrimental enough to take away from you know what what we wanted this movie to be and you know the good we saw in it um this one doesn't have that at all right um and there's a there are just like a lot of things along the way that add up to make it kind of distasteful. I think the first rough one, and again, now that I've read the internet, a lot of these things have already been noted, but it was hard to ignore the weird body swapping uh, consentness of it all, uh, consent of the the body swapping subject. Um, how how do you get to do that and, it, and it's okay? Um, the the woman who just like wants you know popularity and to be liked um turning her into a, a mad woman mm-hmm. uh, and a, you know someone who wants to be as 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 everything as gal gadot like what a weird uh what a weird regressive um plot there the trump character and, is also and, yeah um you know uh a, a latin man <laughs> Um, right. and then the wor- the the most the hardest one to swallow was the whole situation in Egypt. Um, there was a, you know a lot of it's hard to not know uh, Gal Gadot's history in in the IDF, and uh, it was a really I don't know it's a really strange scene to watch and not think it was completely unnecessary or it's on purpose. It. Seems like a strange. We're talking episode. about the scene, the scene where she like re- rescues the kids or whatever. Right by lassoing a missile. Right. Then they go to this yes. Mayan expert who's actually an Indian air actor, Indian American actor. What? Mm. It just add up. There's a there's a that's too many. We've listed five already. That's nuts. There are some curious choices indeed. Um, did we did we sense uh, queerness in in Barbara? And, and Barbara's feelings toward Diana. I did not. Did you? Mm. Um, no, I can't say that I did. But I, I see a lot of internet chatter that like the character of Barbara is is queer in at least some versions of the story. Um, and I've seen other people say that it just felt like very, um, you know, Barbara's feelings toward Diana transcended just sort of like platonic like girl crush wow i wish i could be fierce like you and like went into like <laughs> you know sort of like leering like Ugh. um so mm. uh you know and kristen wig is certainly yeah i mean she's a gifted actor comedy or drama um and i think that she i think her performance could be interpreted both ways um if you will so um, and I don't blame Kristen Wiig for any of this. I mean, I think that she, it's fun to watch her kind of cut loose and play like a full-fledged comic book villain. Um, you know, and I think she, I think she was, she was, you know, believable. I I, I think that she did a great job. 
um, sort of tracking the beats of Barbara and th- th- this escalation, this tr- the escalation of her transformation. Um, I think that you can see it's not one of those things where it feels abrupt. Like they did a great job, even with like her hair and wardrobe of gradually transforming her from, you know, sort of like, you know, mousy lab employee um, to, you know, like, uh, you know, glamour puss. So I, I yes. think that everything done, you know, up until the cat suit. <laughs> so obviously that's where, <laughs> that's where things, that's where things fall off a little bit. Um, so, but, but I, I do give uh, credit to Kristen Wiig uh, for her performance in this film. I, I don't think that any of this is her fault. <laughs> Um, and even Pedro Pascal, it seems like, you know, he's, mm. he's having fun mm. just playing, leaning into sort of the absurdity, um, uh, of his character, uh, you know, seems to have a ball and, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, for, uh, you know, Latino actor to play this ridiculous Trump-like character was cathartic for him, uh, to, to sort of get to just turn this character in this, in even greater buffoon. Um, then on the page, but the you know, sharp difference is that this character does have a a deep love for his son that we've never seen in, in a Trump. <laughs> That's true. Although we also see that he's like constantly kind of ignoring and forgetting his son um, <laughs> while uh, while pursuing his um, you know his earthly goals. So there's that. You know, I mean, I I I don't I don't know if I okay. We haven't even talked about what many point to is the biggest defense, which is the Steve Rogers of it all. Um, that after having killed off Chris Pine at the end of the first movie, that they figure out a way to bring him back for nearly the entire movie. Mm. Um, thus robbing Diana of the chance to be finally just the sole hero of her own film. Uh, because she, you know, she shared it with Steve. It was very much a partnership between Diana and Steve in the first movie. And it was like, okay, cool. Now we actually just get to have Diana be like a standalone hero. And we don't have to worry about her having to like split her screen time with a man. We don't have to worry about Diana's romantic interests uh, muddying the waters. But instead, you know, they just come up with like, basically, you know, a MacGuffin. Like this is like a classic sort of just mm. like MacGuffin, MacGuffin nonsense movie. Where we have the MacGuffin that grants wishes. And then, you know, which is received to come back. And then we have Steve back for the entire movie. And then once again, Diana's entire storyline is about Steve. So uh, it just felt like a poor choice. Uh, and I get that there's probably a lot of folks who are looking to these movies primarily for escapism, who are like, who also enjoy romance. And they're like, well, no, of course, you got to bring Steve back. Um, but I disagree with those people. And <laughs> I think bringing Steve back did a pretty big disservice to the character of Diana and to the film uh, at large. You call it a MacGuffin. I call it a monkey's paw. Clearly, it's a monkey's paw. <laughs> right. It's a monkey's MacGuffin. Uh, so, yeah, it is that. It is that. The fight so, scenes were so bad. The CG in this movie is is dubious. Uh, there's that scene at the end where after Diana and Steve have their like last scene together, when Diana starts to run at great speed, and her legs... <laughs> <laughs> Her, her legs transform into things not entirely recognizable as human. Uh, like the Wily Coyote. <laughs> they do. They become just like these rubber Wily Coyote, just like circle legs. <laughs> um, and they seem to grow longer and bendier um, <laughs> as she hits her, her roadrunner, her roadrunner pace, her resting pace. 
Uh, yeah, it, it's funny how even though this movie, as we all know, was not made for streaming, it somehow ends up feeling like a made for streaming movie. Oh, definitely. It definitely does. I've seen some some criticism that's like, you know, not watching this in the theater allows you to like disconnect from the movie and be more critical right away than you would be lost in it in the theater. I can't imagine that half of the questions that came up to people during this movie around like, wait, why does that jet have fuel? And it's the 4th of July um, would happen even <laughs> if you were in a dark movie theater in silence. I can't remember you sent me this tweet or someone else where someone was like, I'm sorry, but, you know, unless we can see Diana just squatting in the sky, then it's not an invisible jet. <laughs> that was the charm. That was the charm of the invisible jet. So he can see it. There's just, like the movie also has this weird balance of like over explaining things so as not so as not to like. Um, have loose ends, but then makes the story so big that inevitably there are all these like inexplicable things that happen. Right. It's yeah. very choppy in that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's very uneven. Um, and I saw that it has three credit screenwriters uh, in like the final credits in the film. Who knows how big an army of screen- screenwriters they had working on this. Um, it certainly feels disjointed in that way. Yeah, I mean, it's a letdown. And then for them, but I know it was, you know, it's a big success for, uh, you know, for Warner, for HBO Max. And they, like, you know, announced the third one, like, right away. Um, as, like, as the internet is just, like, feasting on the mess that is this movie. Warner's like, success! Get me number three! Mm-hmm. And uh, everyone's like, well, I don't know anyone's asking for that. You know, and, you know, Gal Gadot, I mean, I don't know how I what I think of her as an actor yet. Cause I don't really feel like I've had mm. to see her do much. Like I haven't seen her play different roles. Like she's, you know, she obviously is a very beautiful woman. She has a very sort of commanding uh, authoritative screen presence. Um, and that's about it uh, in terms of what I can say about her as an actor. And, you know, she made that imagine video and we are still expected to go and see her <laughs> in movies. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. Um, you know, in the whole, yeah, I mean, I'm yeah, not going anywhere near the whole, the criticism of, of her, her past and, and the IDF factor and all the rest of it. But, but I know certainly for many that it was a very uh, insulting thing uh, to see her uh, carry out that scene. So, yeah, boy, oh boy, Wonder Woman 1984. Uh, it it uh, ruined many a Christmas. Uh, <laughs> this, this year so I guess at least fortunately people who at least had HBO Max did not have to pay to see it so there's that there's that one perk now that I've become a Marvel head um, <laughs> right. you know take someone like take someone like Zoe Saldana like a one piece of an ensemble in one of these franchises and I think you have a pretty good idea of, of how she can act mm-hmm. but you're going to tell me the title character of these two movies hasn't made an impression on you <laughs> It hardly seems like the movie's fault. Yeah. No, I know. I know. And you want to talk about Endgame and Infinity War tying together clearly and seamlessly a million storylines while Mm -hmm. this one is just a jumbled mess? Come on. Yeah. Yeah. Vote Marvel. No, I know. (laughs) Obviously. Obviously. No, there's no no contest in this call uh, about that subject. Like, obviously it's Marvel all the way. And, uh, in DC, you know, they had the brief shining moment with the first Wonder Woman and now they have gone back to sucking plainly and openly. <laughs> so, uh, so it's good news for Marvel, especially with WandaVision right around the corner. Ah, uh, what are you giving this one, Jason? <sighs> I guess it's a send it back. Wow. I'm also giving it a send it back. 
Okay. <laughs> For a second, I was like, oh, God, am I going to be harsher on than you are? Because I mean, well, a... it still leads a woman, Jason. Um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh... no, I know. I feel like I feel like pretty, pretty okay doing uh, send it back on this one. It's uh, streaming on HBO Max if you are still interested. Movie number two is Soul. Joe is a middle school band teacher whose life hasn't quite gone the way he expected. His true passion is jazz, and he's good. But when he travels to another realm to help someone find their passion, he soon discovers what it means to have a soul. Did you watch Did you watch these both on Christmas? No, I got a screener for Soul a few weeks ago. Um, oh. So I, I did not have to do these back-to-back. Freed up my time to watch National Lampoon. So, <laughs> um, so did, you, did you watch it on, uh, on Christmas back-to-back with Wonder Woman? I... I did. Uh, maybe there was a little bit of a break between the two. <laughs> Slipping some Gilmore Girls. But, right, some, uh, some spiraled ham. I will, have, <laughs> I will have to say that I like the feeling. I like the feeling of, especially this year, um, having such a weird Christmas. And, you know, I don't know. What are you going to get a gift from where? The place that ships it that everyone sees the box. You can't go to the store. You know, it's not like we didn't have a tree. Um, but knowing that I was going to go to bed and wake up for Wonder Woman and Soul was a really cool feeling. And then, yeah, you know, getting up, staying in bed and then and then watching, especially the animated film. I, I, I enjoyed it. I think that I know um, those in the business of movies, this wasn't ideal and, and financially it's not ideal for them. Um, but as a viewer, I, I really enjoyed this really schedule. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's especially, you know, I, I was surprised, very surprised that, you know, that Soul was not was not being charged extra for on Disney Plus. Like, that's right, right? Mm. Like, it was it was not an additional charge, like the way that Mulan was. Uh, since Mulan, when it came to Disney Plus, was like, what, like $30? 30 bucks. Like that? Jesus. Um, and I mean, you know, Soul, as a, as a, you know, a giant holiday Pixar movie... You potentially, you would think, conceivably, would be viewed by Disney as just as high on their list of sort of like revenue-driving tent poles as Mulan, and yet uh, it was just gifted uh, to all of the Disney Plus subscribers at no additional cost. And maybe that had to do—I mean, I don't know if that was always their plan, but certainly the announcement that HBO Max and Warner made um, mm. for the future of Warner titles on HBO Max has been just, you know, a seismic game changer for how studios are approaching the subject of like how to go about distributing movies in this uncertain future that we have. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like now, you know, it would be like, well, why why would you charge $30 if Warner Bros. is giving away movies that are costing hundreds of millions of dollars to make too um, for no additional charge on the streaming service that doesn't even bear their name? Right. So, um, you know, maybe, so I'm, I'm... Maybe there's some sort of like, you know, internal strategy around uh, app sign up and new devices and christmas i wouldn't know anything about that but um just kidding but those things happen yeah no i know uh i'm being facetious because it's my job um (laughs) but uh but yeah so all this all the same yeah soul is the easy easy victor in the 2020 (laughs) major streaming uh, sweepstakes uh between this and and wonder woman uh what a a lovely film you know i didn't know uh what to expect from pixar after their last one onward uh mm. which which as 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 listeners may recall i fucking hated 
Um, what a weird, um, what a weird stone in the stepping path between Coco and Soul. Yeah, yeah. Although, I guess there's a there's there's different things that connect all three of those movies. Um, and even between Onward and Soul, there's still a similar vibe uh, in terms of sort of like. Uh, you know, like different planes of existence and different um, entities taking different forms, and um, you know, like there, there, there's some overlap, but but onward just did it so poorly that just weird me out with you know the half dad ghost running around. I guess um, I was thinking in terms of like animation, you know, when mm. you the the scene of uh, the bridge in Coco, um, the Dia de los Muertos, like yeah, beautifully. Uh, ornate bridge and then the bridge in in soul kind of uh-huh. gave me that same feeling and if and turned it up just a, you know a tiny tiny notch uh, to make it even more impressive and i can't imagine what it'd be like to see that in the theaters but then that that onward in the middle such a weird little gross <laughs> animated mm-hmm. movie yes yes it is and yeah i mean like the the bridge in soul was you know like it really was a little scary in a way um, when we realize what this bridge is 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 doing. So I really feel like it found a very clever uh, a very clever way to to illustrate this the sort of these different facets of like facing death, right? Mm. Uh, sort of like you know of 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 capturing this sort of this magisterial spiritual experience, but also showing the finality of it, the way that we see these different, you know these different uh, spirits on this sort of conveyor belt to their demise. Um, you know, like it's, it's, it's really, uh, it's a heavy movie, you know, it's definitely, you know, it's and you know, of course that's a Pixar hallmark is, is to, uh, have this sort of very magical, bright looking children's film that also deals heavily in themes of mortality. So, and, uh, and soul is no different in that regard. Although it's different in many other regards, uh, there aren't really any notable children characters in it for one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, nor are there, I believe, any talking animals. Uh, or wait, or is I can't. So again, it's been about a month since I've seen it, so it's not the fresh cat? top of my mind. Right there's the cat. <laughs> <laughs> right, because I was like, I was like, I'm like, now one voice goes in one thing, and then one voice goes in another. Now what's the other thing? <laughs> ah, yes. So withdrawn, there is a talking cat. <laughs> <laughs> So it has that. And did the talking cat make you cry? No. Okay. How about that? It did not. Mm-mm. It passed. It passed the Rebecca Tear test. So, <laughs> uh, which I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, but uh, it did not. Uh, it did not. It did not put you into an emotional place uh, that brought about tears. The movie made me cry. The cat did not make me cry. Oh, I see. Fascinating. I mean, this is. That's that's a tall order for a, for a movie to have a, a talking cat in it, but that's not the thing that makes you cry. That's something. That's something. Yeah. Uh, so we have Jamie Fox voicing a jazz musician uh, who dies just as he's about to hit it big, and then goes to a place in the sky uh, where a series of things happen that I have a hard time explaining. <laughs> <laughs> End of summary. Uh, <laughs> and then Tina Fey's there playing an ornery, an ornery spirit. Uh, and then next thing you know, Tina Fey's voice is coming out of Jamie Foxx's human body on Earth, and everybody agrees that's problematic. So, 
whenever whenever it got to the part of the movie where Tina Fey is voicing a black man, I was like, oh, she just can't help herself. She really can't. <laughs> Liz, what have we told you? <laughs> Don't do impressions of other races. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> Maybe love the way she says ham. I don't know. Yeah. Show enough, Angie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, yes, talk to me about watching this movie. Uh, so you you eventually did have an emotional response to it as it went on. Was that toward the end, or or you know yeah. what was your what was your journey? It's so wild. Like I was assuming you didn't. Uh, no, I mean no, I didn't cry. Um, but. You know, I, I enjoyed the, you know, I thought that this movie had a really fresh take on um, on this question of of purpose in life. Um, and I, I did. I love the way that they reframed it. This whole conversation of like mm-hmm. spark. What's your spark? Um, like, I feel like that's a thing that that I certainly related to a lot. Um, this idea of like, what's the thing that happens in your life that animates you mm-hmm. that that points you in the direction that you continue on? Um, you know, I, I, I love that idea. So, I mean, I, I fully give them credit and I'm sure that probably is something from some sort of like Pixar employee indoctrination seminar where they talk about spark, right? And all the employees watch this movie <laughs> are like, oh yeah, they finally got spark into a fucking movie. Um, but, uh, but to me hearing it for the first time, I found it very touching, uh, and very profound. There's a, the, similarly, there's a, a part of the movie that talks about, um, being in, the zone and how the zone is also kind of share space with um, where these sort of lost souls who get buried um, mm-hmm. kind of like live in this um, kind of stuck experience, which um, definitely articulated a, a thought that I've had many times in, in seeing myself and seeing others kind of take something that is supposed to be fun or is supposed to be um, exciting and turn it in and turn it into something that, no longer sparks joy and has become an obligation and has become so i'm leaving the podcast is what i'm saying Um, (laughs) i felt i felt i'm like this is going somewhere isn't it (laughs) (laughs) um no not that but um something where that search for perfection kind of changes um its effect on your life and just just beautifully beautifully shown Mm -hmm. mm-hmm mm-hmm yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, to me, I mean, this this movie certainly treads, you know, the most similar territory to Inside Out, mm. um, as has been widely pointed out. Um, but to me, I found this movie, it had a fresher take. Like Inside Out mm. didn't, you know, it was just kind of, Inside Out was just kind of um, giving a visual identity to things we already knew, right? Like we already knew what emotions we had. Um, and I think that Inside Out did a great job, especially giving children and people with low emotional intelligence uh, the language <laughs> to articulate um, their emotions and to see that all these emotions are valid and they're all needed and they all have their appropriate time um, for uh, for use. Uh, whereas what Soul does is it it takes something much more ineffable, something that we don't have already any sort of concrete objective understanding of which is like what are we doing here and it it finds a way to frame that with a philosophy that i think is yeah like i said it's actually pretty profound like i it really hit me mm-hmm. i i agree um it seemed to me to me more similar to coco i think than 
uh, Inside Out, mm. in it was more dialed in on what the what the, the point was. I felt like Inside Out sort of lacked that. It it lacked that that vision of of what leaving the movie feeling like you kind of understood. Yeah, I guess we to agree with you. So, like something something more other than yeah. just kind of a display. Um, right. And it's a really, I think it's a really important message to give to kids. It almost seems not relevant yet, but I feel like it arms uh, children with the language and the ability to kind of detect those patterns in their life um, mm. before they get to a place of, of kind of, you know, committing to something um, mm. or pigeonholing themselves. Just feels again so so nice that this exists in the world, yeah. um, for youths who can consume it early, and it, I also felt like it was in a time for introspection, mm. and mm. the movie is so beautiful, mm-hmm. so gorgeous. What a, yeah. what a treat! What a treat for the eyes. Oh, and yeah. the ears. The music is wonderful. Hmm. John Baptiste. John Baptiste does the music. Yeah. Um, the scene that uh, made me cry at the end is so well done. It is so you know the movie the whole time takes and again similar to Coco, is about death in a way that is so digestible and so comfortable and you know kind of takes there's a bureaucracy behind it to kind of take some of the the fear out of it as well and and this moment at the end could could have been so artificial and so cloying and it just was so gentle and um sweet Mm -hmm. it was lovely it occurs to me that the arc of joe in soul is somewhat similar to the arc of riz ahmed's character in sound of metal Mm. you know where we have a musician Mm. who is you know at this sort of great place uh in their career and you know of course in in soul it's a sudden kind of a a ramp up of really quick ramp up where suddenly this is great opportunity um and then this this unexpected unimaginable loss uh at at which point we you know go on a journey with our protagonist as they desperately fight to regain this thing that they lost um and then ultimately it's about them finding peace uh with with what was lost and moving Good forward. Good job, Jason. Thanks. <laughs> that was wonderful. Oh, go on. But yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 fascinating. So yeah. So not just like Coco and Inside Out, but also like a heavy metal, hard R drama, Sound of Metal. So. <laughs> <laughs> and well, the the heroin use on that cat. Mm-hmm. Pretty intense stuff. Pretty intense stuff. Finally, a movie that blows the lid off cat heroin. <laughs> um so and which of course is a scourge behind feline aids but moving back to the movie uh yeah this this is a this is a binge it for me it's a binge it for me um all, all right might be the pick of the week um yeah might be two picks of this week who's to say us it we is, are we are uh, i might have two picks this week all right um there might be two picks and two send it backs we'll see how it goes anyway uh, Soul is streaming on Disney Plus. The Midnight Sky is movie number three. A lone scientist in the Arctic races to contact a crew of astronauts returning home to a mysterious global catastrophe. 
It sounded like you said the Arctic racists. I was like, Arctic <laughs> racists? <laughs> the Arctic racists are dealing with hair loss. <laughs> oh, boy, oh, boy. The less I uh, speak with people, my enunciation is just going down the tubes. <laughs> it's sort of like how, you know, how we all have forgotten how to, like, write by hand uh, <laughs> because we never do so anymore. And then we go to, like, write a check or something, and we're just, like, writing, like, caveman scrawl. Um, <laughs> use it or lose it. That's how it goes. Um, so, Rebecca, we were messaging last night, um, planning out our tapings today. And uh, and you at first said that you were watching quote Midnight Cowboy, um, <laughs> and uh, and which which angered me because I was like Rebecca, there's there's a job at hand. <laughs> I'm like this is not the time to be watching Midnight Cowboy. Um, and then I realized that you probably meant Midnight Sky. Um, right. And uh, and we both uh, and you mentioned that you had been uh, texting and on your phone throughout Midnight Cowboy, and I was like, well, that's a classic. <laughs> Um, and then when I realized you meant Midnight Sky, it meant even more sense. Uh, because I believe, as I said to you on text, I have never in my life been on my phone more during a movie than during the Midnight Sky. Yeah. Boy, oh boy. What a yeah. bore. What a fucking bore. Not only is it a bore, I think at one point I was just like, oh, fuck this movie. And like picked up my phone out of protest. I, I could have just... <laughs> Googled the name of it because what else was I doing anyway? Um, but yeah, I think it was part boredom and part um, purposeful. Right. Yes. Uh, so yes, it was. It was part of just automatic reaching for the phone, Pavlovian response, and then also it was also a, you were being defiant. You were like, "See that movie? So I don't care about you." <laughs> yeah. But I have to leave it on because Jason will get mad. <laughs> ask question about the one part I didn't watch, and then I'll be exposed. Uh, yeah, no, uh, I, I had this movie on for its entire duration as well. And I could, I, there's so little that I, that I retain to talk about it. I think in my mind, it, it's already fused with that movie Ad Astra from the previous mm. year with Brad Pitt, another like, you know, sort of metaphysical existential space drama starring a cast member from the Oceans films. Um, this is a movie that is like 10 other movies. Yeah, I, I don't know. I haven't the slightest idea what this movie was meant to do or or be. Um, Clooney, I guess, wrote and directed it. And shame on him. Uh, this is... This it is, is based on a book. It is based on the book. It is mm-hmm. based on the book. Um, I did not read the book, so I cannot compare it because I don't read. But uh, yeah, this was just like stultifying. And I watched this more or less back to back with another movie that we can't review because... I think it's only in theaters and not even on PVOD yet, but I got an award screener for it, which is News of the World with Tom Hanks, mm. uh, the new Paul Greengrass film. And that also pairs Tom Hanks with uh, a nonverbal uh, young girl for the running time of a film. So oh, just, wow. in, just in terms of the tropes here, I was exhausted. Mm. Uh, my wig is exhausted. Um, from these stories about middle-aged men um, paired with nonverbal young girls who they must, you know, shepherd to safety. Um, it's boring. It's fucking boring. I don't care. Uh, okay. And, and this movie has a whole B storyline about, like, you know, like a team of astronauts that are on some other space station or whatever. Um, and w- what even was that story? What, what was that about? What, what were we supposed to take from that? 
I, I kept wanting to say, I, I, I think I kept saying, in what world? And then I was like, oh, right. This is about a new world. I guess it's like K38 or whatever <laughs> in that world, I guess. In what yeah. world do, do you have a spacecraft crew where the captain of the spacecraft is um, is is parenting a baby with one of the crew? That seems like it's very much in violation of all space law. <laughs> Oh, yeah, space space HR is pretty strict on this stuff. Uh, so I think that they must have killed their HR lady. I mean, they kill everybody else. Oh no, yeah. actually, just the woman of color. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then they let people go off on a suicide mission and leave only a few of them behind to do what? Populate a world with just three people that are all related. <laughs> and they're all so cheerful about it. Like, everyone on that ship is just really chipper, no matter what's going on. Uh, lost on me. The only nice thing I can say about it is, it's funny, I had just been texting with another friend a few days ago about the topic of, like, CGI blood. And oh. how, and <laughs> yes, and, and how CG blood is just, like, one of the worst abominations of the overuse of CG in films today, because it's just, it just takes you right out of whatever you're watching, the same way that, like, CG frozen breath is like so distracting. Mm. Um, but this movie makes the most clever and haunting use of CG blood that I have ever seen. It really, it really does. I was, I did, I, th I did smile. <laughs> <laughs> I was tickled it. at that. <laughs> the sound effects too. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Oh. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's that's the nice thing I can say about this movie. Um, and I also will say a nice thing is like the first five minutes where you're like, oh, this is relatable. This is like a mm -hmm. quarantine film. I'm yeah. like, like, oh, this is what you know what would happen if you were like really all by yourself, but you had this like stylish space to go quarantine in. Um, and then that isn't what it is. Right. I think the moment when I started to uh, actively protest the film by not paying attention to it was uh, you already have, you know, George Clooney's character is, I believe he has cancer. He needs these daily blood transfusions to exist. The world is being overtaken by radiation. Um, and... 5G, 5G. <laughs> oh, God, please. Uh, <laughs> and then he goes with this girl on this mission in the arctic in and they're on a snowmobile they stop and and rest in this i don't know military box the box falls into the water and it's like you're just gonna you can't kill this guy like i don't need do not throw more things there's wolves and then there's Ugh. like a snowstorm and then like and enough why yeah. Why do you need to throw... I didn't like this about Revenant, and I don't like this in, in this net made-for-Netflix Revenant. Yes, thank you. I also thought the Revenant, because in a lot of the press coverage of this, the narrative is like, George Clooney had to be really cold when they made it. Um, <laughs> which was really similar to the coverage from the Revenant, where it was like, do you know how cold they were? I'm like, they chose to make this movie! They don't get, they had every no. choice at every turn to do it differently. He directed no it. No credit. Yeah. He literally, yeah. In this case, literally clearly directed it. They're like, oh, you know, Inuritu and DiCaprio were out there in the snow. It's like, yeah, because they're making a fucking movie of their own choice and profiting <laughs> richly. 
So it just drives me nuts when it's about like, oh, they had, do you know what the harsh conditions were? Like, you did this to yourself. I don't give a shit. Uh, like, no extra credit for that. Um, None. I do and not care. No, no. And Netflix also, they are by far the most annoying uh, studio when it comes to award season. Because not only do they send physical screeners of all every single movie that is streaming on their service do they you send you a, a fi- complimentary transfusion kit <laughs> so not only do you get individual dvds in the full like fold out for your consideration uh sleeves but they also send out these self-important coffee table books for the ones that they feel the most bullish about mm. and these and then suddenly you just have this fucking 20 pound huge book that you have to figure out what to do with um, for a piece of shit movie. So there, you know, I have like a 50 pound Midnight Sky coffee table book. What am I going to do with that? <laughs> uh, and they, they sent one for Trial Chicago 7 too. I'm like, okay, well that's slightly better. But also, like, let me opt out of this. I don't want your coffee table books. No, you don't need that. Uh, no, no. It's just so wasteful. It's so wasteful. And especially given Midnight Sky's like ecological message. <laughs> Uh, seems yeah. to run counter to create so much unnecessary waste for awards purposes, but uh, but yeah, no, this is a, this is a big send it back for me. This is one of the most boring movies I've seen. Any any note about the uh, the twist at the end? I don't remember it. Oh, <laughs> you didn't finish it. I did finish it. I did finish it, but I was not paying attention because, as mentioned, I've never been on my phone more during a movie than I was during this one. Wow, I mean, I feel like it was a very predictable twist, but it was a big one. So. I don't remember. Was he dead the whole? Was was he dead the whole time? I don't remember. (laughs) No, you were. Um, Oh yeah, and that explains mm -hmm. it. That's what it was. Uh, Well, Mm -hmm. it's cheesy and predictable, and I hated the movie even more. Well, all right. Lucky didn't. Lucky didn't remember it. Uh, Midnight Sky, Netflix. Movie number four. Was a send it back for you as well then? Oh yeah. What? Yes. (laughs) Send it back. Send Clooney back. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Right now we're living in a world where where like people are are do they just they have to go to the grocery store and they're risking their lives and and might come back uh, and get COVID. But I'm gonna watch this motherfucker with cancer and a baby go out in the snow and no, and he survived. No, absolutely not. No. No. That's all. That's all. Yeah, it's a binge it. You know. Um, <laughs> Movie number. <laughs> I'm sending everyone a coffee table book. Um, <laughs> movie Postage number four. due. <laughs> <laughs> Collect on delivery. <laughs> movie number four is Sylvie's Love. Sylvie has a summer romance with a saxophonist who takes a summer job at her father's record store in Harlem. When they reconnect years later, they discover that their feelings for each other have not faded with the years. I watched this one right after Midnight Sky. Oh, this I already have some 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 perspective explained to me just <laughs> through that because I've taken a gander at your year end list and uh, and I happen <laughs> to know that you feel pretty good about this one. You know, it's that thing. It's like why you're supposed to order paint swatches for the house. A color could look blue, and you put it next to a yellow, and then it looks greenish. You know, this movie looks like a pot of greenish. gold at the end of the rainbow to me. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. I could see that. I think I also watched it right after something. I've been in like 
nonstop round the clock movie watching mode for the last like two weeks. Um, just trying to get all my year end shit knocked out. So it's so all blur to me. Did you actually understand the the meaning of soul? That- did I did I did I understand? Oh well, no. Since I yeah, I watched that one before I started my 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 marathon. So that one got to be its own kind of special. All attention was focused on Soul when I watched it. Unlike okay, everything I've watched for the last few weeks where I've been checked out. The point was lost on you. The point of Soul. Oh, I see what you mean. <laughs> uh, yes, I was like, I was like, what? No, I just said. Oh, I see what you're saying. <laughs> You're saying I'm a dead soul. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yes. So uh, so you're a big fan of this movie. Why don't you tell us why? Tessa Thompson was so cold making this movie. <laughs> we need to give her credit for that. Crazy. Mid-century wardrobe was... doesn't, doesn't, doesn't keep you warm. Very drafty. Mm-hmm. Um, Sylvie's Love. Uh, it is a very sweet and simple love story of a couple who faces challenges both of uh, status and timing and and uh, wanting to make something out of their lives and following their passions, but also following love. It is beautiful. It is beautifully shot. The costuming is wonderful. The, the actors um, are smoldering, and uh, it couldn't be more different from Midnight Sky. <laughs> what, a, what a simple, yeah. human, understandable movie and i feel like we needed something to root for uh we soul and i did that thing during this movie where we're like okay stop the movie now okay stop the movie now please don't let anything bad happen right uh, and yes. uh, and i i feel i'm i feel okay about it yeah i seen i saw a similar comment uh, from a review basically i think it was written by a black critic saying that you know they they, they feel so they feel so conditioned by other black love stories to just wait for, you know, the inevitable tragedy uh, to befall its characters. Um, and I think we even talked about this for for some queer romance that yeah. we reviewed in the last year. And, and at this point, I feel like most movies, just in general, uh-huh. sure, yeah, more yeah, yeah. towards that kind of uh, resolution. But yeah, definitely queer movies as well. Yes. Um, so to be able to have, um, you know, a story uh, that is about marginalized people having, you know, uh, a profound, beautiful human experience uh, and to not have to then have something terrible happen to one of them um, is is a real treat. Um, you know, this movie, it crosses over slightly into kind of Ryan Murphy Hollywood territory in the sense that it is very much giving us the sort of uh, revisionist um, alternate history, because uh, as as we're following Tessa Thompson's character, uh, she moves kind of up the career ladder. Uh, she begins to work under uh, a producer at a TV st- uh, at a TV network, and the producer she works under is a black woman. Um, eventually, Tessa Thompson continues to climb the ladder and become a producer herself, and this takes place in the '60s. So we know this is not. This is not meant to be a strictly literal representation of history, uh, because the you know white male power structure of the time would it barely allows it now, uh, let alone in the 60s. Uh, but all the same, so I think that does let the viewers know that this is not a movie that's that is taking place in like the strictest, most literal representations of uh, of history of the period that it takes place. You know, it's not if Beale Street could talk, um, in both the good way and the bad way. 
um, because, you know, like it, uh, if Bill Street could talk is a prime example of basically the counterpoint to this movie, which is uh, similarly, it's a stunningly gorgeous, ravishing love story in mid-century New York between two black people, um, but in which we have like a truly harrowing, uh, you know, uh, counter narrative that's playing out in which the man is um, imprisoned on, you know, a false allegation. So, uh, so in this, we are in this alternate version of New York history where there is simply, there is just no oppression of, of black people. Uh, and its characters are free to exist and thrive and aspire and have ambition and realize their dreams without the specter of white supremacy uh, and racism uh, uh, slamming the door shut. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a real uh, uh, breath of fresh in that regard. At least that's my take. Uh, Interesting. What, what do you, yeah, I I sort of didn't see it as sort of like a a revisionist history. I I think that I didn't think it was like a a biography or that it was you know a, a true story. I sort of if if this were not an all black cast, I don't know that I think about this were like a white love story that I would say Mm -hmm. like, is this an alternate universe if this didn't actually kind of line up with what I know about television Mm -hmm. history or whatever industry. Um, So I didn't think of it that way. I I thought of it sort of like agnostic of whether it's point or counterpoint to like a true story. And I think that there are moments, they don't ignore race. You know, there's this whole um, section about Tessa Thompson's uh, partner uh, and their company being uh, protested by the NAACP and how that might have something to do with his success of the company. Uh, she you know, openly says that she never thought there would be a woman of color in, in television production. So mm-hmm. it's not that it's without um, right. racism. It's not, that, it's not that it doesn't exist. Uh, right, they just but... happen to have a, an existence where in this movie, it's not a main character. Yeah, I mean, it exists to a significantly lesser degree for these characters and their lives uh, than it would have in that actual time and place for these characters. Hmm. Which is, I mean, I mean, I'm not like saying a controversial thing. Like that's just objectively true for the '60s, you know, in television production or any industry, really. Sure. So, so you know, it's sort of a, it sort of it imagines a world. Where, you know, I think we've, we've talked about a series of films recently that are about um, sort of black creatives coming up against white gatekeepers, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like 40-year-old 40 40 version and uh, and uh, what was the last one? Um, um, oh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Thank you. There it is. <laughs> um, so, uh, and in this it kind of removes, uh, you know, like there are not, there's not the same question of the white gatekeepers. Like in this case, we're able to watch these characters thrive and not have to worry about uh, compromising uh, and pleading and begging to the white gatekeepers um, for, uh, you know, a a crumb from the table to to do what they want to do. Uh, You know, in this case, we already have, like Tessa Thompson is able to meet a woman who already is a TV producer. And you're right, she does have dialogue when she first meets her where she's like, I didn't know that there was, uh, you know, until five seconds ago that there was, a, you know, a black woman uh, doing this job. Um, so and I kept waiting for there to be some sort of like, uh, you know, that, that kind of hard, that harder moment to happen. Like Wendy McLennan Covey is in the film playing oh. a T. <laughs> yes, playing a playing a TV chef. 
and uh, you know, sort of like a, a, a basically she's doing the um, Amy Sedaris show, uh, but, <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> but, in a, but in a straight faced way um, from the era that Amy Sedaris is paying homage to. Um, and I kept waiting for her to just be like really overtly racist or to just be like, you don't tell me what to do or, you know, and she never does. Uh, you know, like this is just not a movie about having those kinds of harrowing racist interruptions in black life. Uh, this is a movie that allows its characters to exist without that. And in that way, it is, sadly, uh, sort of inherently a fantasy. It's a romantic it's a romantic drama that has a sort of fantasy setting in terms of its characters not having to be put through the ringer. Um, but, you know, and that's part of what makes it so refreshing to not have to go through trauma while watching a love story about black people. I think even out, outside of um, it being a black couple, I think also not having mm, like drugs be part of the mm-hmm. the jazz scene, um, or which again, know, fantasy. <laughs> You're gonna tell me Miles Davis is in the next studio and nobody's <laughs> doing heroin? <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah, no, it's a fantasy. It's a fantasy, but it's a sweet one. I feel like fantasy is kind of a heavy, a heavy word for the movie. How I viewed it was that it existed as fiction, mm-hmm. but I wanted to be on, of course, in the back of my head, there was always going to be this moment of like, please don't. And it's please don't a lot of things, right? right. Um, that are both about race and not about race. But I was trying to let it exist as, as, as not being too focused on race and more focused on the relationship. You know? Right. You know I mean? Right. Yeah, yeah, no, and I, and I think it's and I think it's it's true that you know, and I, I think that when we watch um, a romantic, like let's, let's say, a romantic comedy about white people, there are a lot of details in those films that are not strictly rooted in reality either. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, and we don't call those fantasies. Um, but I think with this one, just given the contrast between what reality actually was in the '60s. Um, versus what the reality is in this movie. It's just, yeah, I mean, it's it's a very wide chasm of difference that, you know, I that I think is worth observing. It doesn't take anything away from the movie. Um, I think that's part of why the movie is so enjoyable for folks, because it's also aspirational. Like, this is the kind of movie that, if it had existed in the period in which it, in which it set, um, I think it, you know, it could have made a, a huge difference for audiences just to see that kind of representation, to see these characters, these Black characters who are defined by their dreams and they are driven to realize them and they do realize them. You know, it's just something as simple as that to have that exist in the cultural space to give black audiences uh, that point of connection, I think would have been very, very powerful. And it's still powerful today. Powerful today. (laughs) (laughs) And the guy who plays the, her boyfriend, whoa, 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 what a cute guy that is. They're a good looking couple, those two. They are. Um, that is the football player, um, husband to Kerry Washington. That's Kerry Washington's husband? Mm-hmm. His name is Namdi Asamuga. Yeah, no, that's, he I, I didn't a, know. Yeah, he, that guy used to be a football player? He's a professional football player um, for He's so petite. Like 10 years. I <laughs> the same, <laughs> went through the same journey. <laughs> and then. I said, he played cornerback. And I said, well, that doesn't help me. I don't know what that is. Um, right. And then Sol was like, oh, you never watched Friday Night Lights. Um, 
<laughs> but it Again, seems Matt, like Matt they're... Aronson was a was a petite quarterback on that show, I guess. They're supposed to be fast because they they run to defend the person who's running to catch the ball, the receiver. So you have to be like I as see. fast as they're not like the big guys in the middle that kind of all smush against each other. I'm retaining all of this. It, uh, it adds uh, context to why he's so tiny. <laughs> it does. It does. Played no, for I like that. the 49ers, the Raiders, the Philadelphia Eagles. Yeah. He went to UC wow. Berkeley. Yeah. yeah, no, he's he's so pretty and petite. I would never have thought that. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. <laughs> Um, uh, he also produced mind. this movie. Yeah, well, he's great. He's great in it. Um, we we uh, we also have uh, Eva Longoria uh, mm-hmm. doing 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 her best Rita Moreno impression. Uh, real nice, real nice. Yeah, it's just yeah, it's a real it's a real treat. Uh, uh, this one, it's it is sort of to me. Uh, it's still it's a pretty it's a pretty slight movie. Um, you know, it's it's very much like it's it almost reminds me of um, Far From Heaven in a sense uh, where it is it is made in such a it's such a loyal, faithful reproduction of a movie from that era, mm. um, you know, that it doesn't. And I wouldn't say it's about Far From Heaven, um, you know, because I think Far From Heaven still ultimately had a bit of a, you know, sort of like a, this this queer, impactful twist to it. Um, you know, at, at times watching Sylvie's Love, it was sort of for better or worse, like watching a movie from that era. You know, it was it was not the most fast moving story, uh, not exactly an edge of your seat movie. Um, but yeah, it's just it just it, it's a leisurely it's a leisurely narrative uh, that and it's gorgeously made, stunning set, stunning costumes, beautiful performances. Um, but uh but yeah, but maybe not not exactly reinventing the wheel uh, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, you have nothing to say about Jemima Kirk as the Countess. <laughs> That's right. Yes, there was also that. That was wonderful. Um, <laughs> and uh, and as and as you probably know, as many listeners know, uh, anytime someone is called the Countess, I'm already interested. <laughs> um, especially if it's someone called the Countess who's a New York socialite who dabbles in the music scene because I know a lady like that and her name is Luann Delaseps. So um, now I just want to see Jemima Kirk play Luann Delaseps. But uh, yes, thank you for reminding me. Mm-hmm. This movie is uh, a treat. It is a delight. It is a movie that you, you get lost in. It reminds me of... Uh, it has the it has that nostalgia feeling as you were saying like a movie made in the time but it's but it's a movie for i don't know it just takes you back to watching a movie at that time and it and it takes you away from the world and um i enjoyed every moment of this movie talk about putting my phone down after some heavy usage and <laughs> just getting swept up by this movie um this is getting a binge it for me and it is my second pick of the week uh, big big week for jazz <laughs> big week for jazz it is it's a consume plus for me it's not quite a binge yet i was on my phone quite a bit still mm-hmm. um but uh yeah it's a consume plus for me um and it is streaming on prime video and that's it jason that's it thank you so much for tuning in jason is on twitter at excess baggage i'm at fight balance um see you next year guys bye Bye-bye. Binging on movies with Rebecca and Jason. You made it to the end, that's amazing. There There goes goes the the binge. binge.